Oftentimes, it's better to start with creativity to help you learn the facts. Life is too short to learn a, a list of a thousand rando words. From the campus of Stanford University, this is Schools In with your hosts, Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. Welcome to Schools In. I'm Denise Pope, senior lecturer with the Graduate School of Education here at Stanford University, and I'm with my co-host, Dan Schwartz, who is dean of the Graduate School of Education. I should mention that because this is happening during COVID-19, we are not in the studio today. We are doing the radio show via Zoom, and our guest today will also be joining us via Zoom. Well, Dr. Denise, it's not over yet, Pope. It is not over yet. I feel like it's not even close to being over, or maybe it will never be over. Yeah, so so we have the world's expert with us today. Uh, but before we get there, I, I have a question I want to ask you before I ask the expert, just because the expert will prove us both wrong. But uh, so how, how do you talk to kids about COVID? So my, my son is is he's he's in his 30s, so it's not the same kind of issue. My one experience with uh, this kind of event was I was on a plane and the plane was fine and suddenly it took a nosedive. And, and for like three minutes, it was just dropping incredibly fast. And it, it turned out some chemical in somebody's luggage broke open and they dropped the plane to 5,000 feet to air, air things out. But I'm sitting there and my son is looking at me and I'm trying to be like, it's fun. This is nothing, you know, and, and you know, I'm just my main goals were not to scare him. And to assure him that everything's okay. Yeah. So that's that's probably too coarse a response for for telling your children about COVID. So what how would you do this? Well, first of all, what you just said is one of my biggest nightmares. I'm not a good flyer in and of itself <laughs> anyway. And um I look to the flight attendants and when they get nervous or when they're that's you know, that's yeah, yeah. so so the way this worked was flight attendants take your seats. Right. And suddenly it just drops. Yeah. The oxygen mask didn't pop out. Okay. That's so good. I, so I'm thinking, is it a mechanical failure or is this on purpose? Right. Well, either way, I don't know that if I were in that same situation with my children, I could have been calmed. I was on a plane that had turbulence pre COVID and I literally grabbed my neighbor's arm. This, this is how I am. Right. And then I felt terrible and started apologizing. And she said, no, it, it's okay. It's okay. So she did what to me, what you did to your son. Well, I, I like you. I like the fact that you find comfort in strangers. I do. I find comfort in strangers, but, but I, I here's the thing. And it obviously depends on the age of the kids. And obviously our expert is going to uh, say much more, but um, there is, there is something to be said for this. The kids look at, the parents and how they are responding. And if you are completely panicking, there will be panic. There's something called co-regulation, right? Where we're, we are co-regulating one another. So you, you want to be um, uh, forthright and honest developmentally appropriately, right? But I think you also, um, it, it's not good to be a hundred percent like I'm freaking out. So then they're going to freak out or I'm super calm Right. And they'll, they might know that you're not telling the truth. So I think it's sort of a, a, an in-between here. Um, and I do think it depends on the age of the kids, but I think this should be one of the first questions that we ask our expert. But just, just to make sure uh, we should talk to our kids about it. 
Oh my gosh. Well, first of all, they know, right. And that, unless they're like an infant, right. Even preschool kids know there's something going on because their teacher's wearing a mask. Right. So you, you can't, it's never good. I think to hide these things from kids. Um, I do think you have to be developmentally appropriate in how much information you give them and what they can handle. And also even more importantly, giving them um, solutions for how, you know, we're here to help keep you safe. And these yes. are the things we do to help us all stay safe. But but rather than hearing Dan and Denise talk about this, <laughs> I think we should bring in our expert. Are, are you good with that, Dan? Yes, please. Okay. Well, we we are thrilled. We This audience has actually heard this expert before. This is her second time on the show. We are really lucky to have Dr. Bonnie Baldonado, who is professor and chief of the pediatric division of infectious diseases at Stanford Medicine. She's the authority on children and the coronavirus. Um, it's I, I can't believe it, but it's actually been over a year since we've had Bonnie on the show. And while many things are the same, many things are different now. So we will... Um, we look forward to hearing what Dr. Maldonado has to say. So thank you for joining us again. It's really a pleasure to be here. And boy, I tell you, I feel like smacking that pilot for not telling you, (laughs) you know, uh, give me a heads up here. (laughs) Exactly. I I had that thought. It would have been nice to have known. Yeah. Yeah. But that's also a very very similar to what we, I would say about kids. And as a pediatrician, Denise, I, uh, you know, I remember bringing my kids to hear you talk when they were in <laughs> high school in the Bay area. Cause I have three kids in their late twenties, early thirties. And, um, you know, I tried to keep them as informed as possible. Um, and it is, you know, you do age appropriate things, but you know, they're pretty smart. They know what's going on. And I have to tell you, um, one of the big things that happened since last year is we were uh, we have vaccines. That was the big thing. We have vaccines now. It's been just about a year anniversary. We uh, approved the first uh, vaccine just about a year ago uh, this week, the Pfizer. And in next week, it'll be a year that we approve the Moderna vaccine. The Pfizer vaccine is the one that's available for anybody five and over. So um, one of the things that was really exciting for us here at Stanford is I was leading the Pfizer pediatric vaccine trials here at Stanford. And I'm proud to say that we have one of the most diverse populations enrolled in the trial. And we had a tremendous response. We had thousands, thousands of families who wanted to enroll in the trials here at Stanford. Unfortunately, we couldn't take them all, but uh, they were just eager. And I have to tell you, watching those kids, you just know, first of all, that they do read what their parents don't even say, but what their face looks like. And I remember my kids doing that. They would look at your eyes and they knew from your face what was going on, even if you didn't say anything. But these kids were ready. Some of them came in at, with their dolls and their little uh, toy medicine kits and knew what a vaccine was, even the little ones. And they um, they did really, really well. So um, some of the kids were saying, oh, my gosh, I'm so excited. I was the only one in the family who couldn't get vaccinated. And I was I, it was a game changer for me. I mean, just, you know, so I think these children, you know, need to hear um, from their families um, because they're going to hear it outside anyway. I think that's right. And I'm so happy to hear that the kids were excited. I mean, what we're hearing in the news now is there's, I, I think I'm hearing this, more resistance 
from parents of the younger kids than even parents of the teens. And I know there was some resistance with parents of the teens and we had teens who wanted to um, defy their parents' wishes and get the vaccine regardless. So are, what are you seeing in terms of uh, hesitance and resistance with the, the younger kids? Yeah, you know, it's uh, really interesting. What we are seeing is that about, um, about 20% of the five to 11 year olds now are vaccinated. The number is closer to 50% for the 12 to 17 year olds. And obviously for the little ones, it's not because the kids don't want to get vaccinated. It's because the parents probably aren't. And we had a pretty good surge of pretty good surge of, of people coming in at first. So the vaccine was licensed uh, or approved under emergency use for five to 11 year olds uh, the first week of November. And we saw 10% or 2.8 million kids come in and get vaccinated that first week or two. two. And the numbers just kind of flattened out. So we did get a lot of people come in and then just haven't seen a lot. Hey, Bonnie, if if COVID were polio, do you think people would come in at a higher rate? You know, I think I think if it were not COVID, it doesn't matter what it would be. If it was anything but COVID, I think people would do it. Um, there's something very uh, polarizing and political now about COVID Mm-hmm. Um, that we just haven't seen before. You know, I was a member of the public health service when I was at CDC and we just got in line and rolled up our sleeves and they just vaccinated us. Um, they didn't even, t- I asked what the vaccines were just because that's what I did for a living. Most people didn't ask. And now, you know, everybody has an opinion about uh, this and it's good to have an opinion, but having an informed opinion means listening to the experts and I, I hate to use that term expert, but, you know, if you've been doing infectious disease work for your whole career and you know these vaccines are safe, I don't think it's a political issue. So, yes, COVID definitely polarizes people right now. This is Schools In, and I'm Denise Pope here with my co-host, Dan Schwartz. We are talking with Dr. Maldonado from Stanford about all things coronavirus and and the vaccines. And that's one of the big differences from when you were here before. Um, another is some studies on masking and, you know, how useful it is. And, and now I'm kind of confused again because I knew for sure wearing a mask was good. Um, what I'm confused about is the type of mask. Can you say a little bit more about that? Well, I can tell you that just like a vaccine and a vial does not protect anybody, a mask that's not on your face doesn't protect you. So <laughs> I would say any kind of mask really is going to be helpful. The gators. I just don't think they're that helpful. The bandanas, same thing, probably because they're just not really able to cover your nose and mouth well. But, you know, people are starting to talk about the KN95s and all that. And, you know, if you feel comfortable with those, that's great. But any mask um, that's clean and you, if you use a reusable mask, make sure you wash it. Those are anything's going to be pretty helpful. And the reason I say that is when you look at the studies that have been done on masks, they've been done in very large populations, because it's really hard to do individual studies like this, because the transmission rates really aren't high enough to look at a small number of people. You need to look at populations. And there were some really nice studies, one done in North Carolina, another one done in Massachusetts. One was uh, claims-based. The other one was based on school attendance. And um, these were very large studies with hundreds of thousands of kids involved. And we saw that school districts that use masks um, had less outbreaks, had less infections than schools that didn't. And there was other indications as well that schools that use masks and distancing 
even if it was three feet versus six feet did really well. So we have data and I know we're hearing, unfortunately, from some people who claim to be epidemiologists and infectious disease experts that masks have not been proven to work. And that's absolutely false. We know that masks work. We have data to prove it. And we have um, our own experience here in healthcare settings where masking um, has worked incredibly well. We have not seen outbreaks in our hospitals. I don't know of any major hospital around the country that uses good policies uh, where we have seen outbreaks due to uh, if people are wearing proper masks. So most of the exposures and outbreaks that might be happening in healthcare settings, for example, are happening when people take off their masks, for example, to go eat or have a break. Can I ask a technical question? I've just, I've wondered this. I don't know if anybody else cares, but I care. So I've seen these tables that show sort of the increased odds of transmission, depending on what kind of mask two different people are wearing. Like if uh, Denise and I are both wearing cloth masks, I think it, you know, it's, uh, it reduces the odds of, of transmission like fourfold. And in those, those tables, they always talk about time to a viral load. What is a viral load? So, you know, we have people who do work like I do. So I'm an epidemiologist. I look at populations and trends in populations. I'm also a clinician. So I'll see one patient and say, what happened to that particular person? Those things correlate pretty well. But now you have aerosol engineers, you have environmental engineers who are coming in and weighing the risks and benefits of, of a particular kind of mask versus an N95, for example. And, you, and an N95 is called that because it's, 95, it, it filters out 95% of particles. So you still, in theory, could have 5% of very small particles getting to you. Now, that's a theoretical risk in real life. Have we seen infections and exposures? If it were coronavirus, I would say, you know, I'm not worried about it. If it were Ebola, I want something else because Ebola is not necessarily more infectious, but it is infectious in a different way, there's secretions and other things, not just air. And you don't, you know, you, you don't want to be covering yourself if you've got if you've got secretions from a patient and worrying about a mask. Plus, Ebola is almost 100% fatal. Coronavirus is not. So I think um, those are the kinds of things you have to take into consideration when you look at those tables. Like, so the risk, if I'm in a restaurant and the risk of you and I sitting across the table from each other with a cloth mask. Um, if I'm not, if, you know, if I have low levels of virus versus high levels, um, you know, are probably still going to be close, so close to zero as to be unperceptible. But, you know, you're looking at large scale data. And so I think the aerosol engineers are trying to give you a scale. And we think that the amount of virus you have correlates with your risk of spreading, right? Because if you have more virus, it's going to spread. But like if, it, if I get one coronavirus particle in my nose, it, is, my, is my mucus going to take care of it and I'm okay? Or like if I get a 10,000 particles, then, then my system can't, can't. Is that what viral load is? Yeah, exactly. And we don't really know. You know, it would be nice to do those studies. I've been trying to do those kinds of studies with poliovirus because you know, we used to, we like to use polio because there's a vaccine where you can use as a proxy for infection. And it's a really nice way to figure out how transmissible our virus is. So for example, we know that Shigella, which is a bacteria that causes dysentery, severe explosive bloody febrile diarrhea, 
um, is you only need about 10 bacteria to make you sick. Whereas salmonella, which we all know and love, is a foodborne organism in uh, you know eggs and other things. If you don't wash your hands, it can be you know in lots of foods. Um, you need a hundred thousand or more organisms to get sick with salmonella. So every organism may have a different set point. We don't really know yet the set point for this virus, but we're assuming that the higher your viral load, the more likely you are to be infected. And yes, there are defenses that your, you know, the mucus in your nose probably provides. So, so, you know, it's the Swiss cheese effect, right? If you have enough holes that are randomly scattered and you, you're, if they're not all lined up, you're actually going to wind up putting enough barriers between you and the virus that the, that one of those Swiss cheese pieces is going to catch the virus on its way over to you. I, I, that analogy helps me so much. Thank you. Thanks, Bonnie. You are listening to Schools In with Denise Pope and Dan Schwartz. We're talking with Dr. Maldonado from Stanford about all things coronavirus. And it's so helpful to hear some explanations of things that we've been living with for a year. And, you know, you hear viral load, you hear what kind of, you know, masks to wear and whatnot. It's just nice to hear from an expert. Yeah. So (laughs) I I love the science, but let let me uh, get back to the kids. So do, do kids get long COVID? Do we know? Yes, they do. What we don't know is what what that looks like and how many kids get it and how long it's going to last. Because obviously we're only two years in here. We don't know. But we do think that kids uh, get uh, can have symptoms even three, six, eight months after their primary infection that primarily seem to be neurologic or developmental. So for example, they may still have what we call brain fog because we don't really know what that means, but just not really thinking clearly. They may have memory lapses. A lot of the kids are actually experiencing, a lot of the kids who have long COVID, not a lot of kids overall, uh, are having still some chest pain or uh, difficulty breathing, depending on how severe their, their illness was to begin with. We think the number is probably less than 20% of kids, but we don't really know. The federal government, uh, through the uh, National Institutes of Health and others, have put together um, big trials to try to look at this. And so far, we haven't seen any data from these groups. because It's really hard to pull these kids together and recruit them. And actually, we just got a $15 million grant from the National Institutes of Health to study long COVID, but in adults. And we're hoping also to be part of the national network for kids. You need networks for children because there aren't as many kids who had severe enough disease to really follow over time. But the adults, because there were so many, uh, that that's a, a, a little going to be a little easier to do. But all those studies are just starting to take take off now. And do we know anything about vaccine and long COVID? So if a kid is vaccinated, are they less likely to get long COVID? Great question. We don't know. We'll we'll find out the answer to that. Remember, we've only really been able to vaccinate little kids since May. Uh, we've been able to vaccinate 16 and above since a year ago, but uh, but really uh, the littler kids not since May, and then the younger ones even more recently in November. And uh, we're also we also saw the most uh, surge and kids really happen at the end of this year when Delta showed up. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope, and we will have more with Dr. Bonnie Maldonado next as we come back on SiriusXM, more on all things coronavirus. 
You're listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. So it is hard to predict what the future will be. The focus is really on academics. From the campus of Stanford University. Welcome back to Schools In. I'm your host, Denise Pope, here with Dan Schwartz. And we are talking with Dr. Bonnie Maldonado of Stanford Medicine about the latest coronavirus numbers, what the science says. Any, any, any question that really comes to Dan and Denise's mind is actually what's being asked. <laughs> Dan, do you have another one? Uh, actually, I, I wanted to go to one of Bonnie's uh, very specific expertise, which is household transmission. I'm, I'm in a house with people. They're young kids. The windows are closed. It's, we're all sleeping. Is this just a recipe for contagion? Yes and no. Uh, yes, if you don't have, if you've got enough exposures outside the home, yeah, for sure. So I, my sense is, uh, from what I've seen overall, is people are, like everything else, people are bringing in the infection from outside. So if that mom and dad have to go to work somewhere where they don't have masks, so they're doing a lot of frontline work, they're going to bring it home. And that's what we saw. You know, I took care of a lot of the patients that we enrolled in our clinical trials here including our vaccine trials. And we had whole carloads of families coming in. There was always a, a source. It was either at work or rarely at school, not often at school, it was mostly at work. So kids get infected usually from family members who have to go to work or, uh, or are out for other reasons in high-risk areas. And then they might get infected, bring it to school. Um, so that's what we're seeing happening really is that, and, and what we're finding overall is still, it looks like adults are still more likely to get um, infected, although we're seeing that kids obviously can, can get infectious as well. It's just that they're not the super spreaders that we tend to see with most respiratory viruses. Well, that's really interesting. So so it's it's the parents that are bringing it home, not the By kids. and large, by yeah. and large, yeah. I, I also have heard that there are, large populations out there that are still afraid to send their children to school. So there's large school districts who are still missing like a thousand kids, you know, or more. And um, some of that is older kids have are now working and putting money on the table because they need to, or because they want to. And so we've lost some older kids, but I know that there's parents of younger kids who are still afraid to send their kids to school. What would you say to those parents? Well, there's a couple of things. First of all, anybody five and older pretty much can get vaccinated. So if you're really afraid, you should get your kids vaccinated if they're five and above that there's no reason not to get vaccinated and send your children back to school. Um, if people live in areas around the country where they're um, not using masks, I, I can understand people being a little worried there, but there's nothing that says you can't send your child to school with a mask. Um, the problem is that a lot of places aren't mandating masks or even, you know, sometimes they're actively discouraging them, but they can't stop you. But vaccinate your kids. These vaccines are incredibly safe in children. We've already given you know, over 50% of 12 to 17 year old kids have been vaccinated. About 20% of five to 11 year olds are vaccinated now. And these, we just got an update. Um, this is December, uh, middle of December, 2021. We just got an update today. The vaccines are doing incredibly well in terms of safety for kids. So do that. Um, the other thing is, I agree with you, Denise. I don't think most people are keeping their kids home because they're um, feeling worried. That is a subset. A lot of kids are just not going back. They dropped out. They are suffering mental health issues. 
There may be some economic reasons, and that's really a tragedy. These kids need to get back into school. So I, I don't know how school districts are going to be able to recapture those children. But if somebody is afraid, um, they should get the kids vaccinated. If the kids are smaller, they're under five, those are preschool kids. And um, those are there are ways you can uh, go to uh, uh, preschools that are already certified to be safe for their children. Thank you for that, because I think what we also know is that kids need to be in school. Right. We know from a mental health standpoint, from a learning standpoint, from a future career, college, et cetera, kids need to be in school. So the longer that people are holding them out, I think the, the greater we're going to see some of the other repercussions, not not just potential for covid, but potential for um, long term mental health issues as well. Yeah, there's absolutely uh, so many uh, terrible things that have happened to children's health overall. And the vaccine, the, the, the COVID disease itself is one of them, but mental health issues, depression, physical inactivity, uh, developmental issues, all of that has happened. Uh, over 140,000 kids in this country have lost their parents. Um, and then there are other economic issues that also go along. So getting them back into school is one way that they can be nurtured in a very systematic way, especially for parents who may feel be feeling overwhelmed themselves. You're listening to Schools In with Denise Pope and Dan Schwartz. We are talking today with Dr. Maldonado from Stanford about all things coronavirus. This is kind of an unfair question. Let, let's say we, it, we were going to start over, like COVID is just starting. Would we educate the parents and the children differently? Like if you knew what you knew now, would the messaging to the parents or the kids be different than what we did before? Oh, heck yeah. Okay. <laughs> the first thing that happened with kids was at the federal level, people saying, A, children don't get infected. B, children don't get sick if they get infected. And then finally, uh, children don't, um, don't transmit to others. Those are all things that do happen. Children, absolutely, we know. And we knew that at the beginning because when we looked at China, they already had data on children getting infected and getting sick. So we knew that, but somehow in this country and in the Western world, people just discounted the pediatric component. And I think I would really emphasize that right up front because even today I still hear from people who don't think kids get infected or get sick. And, you know, I can tell you right now that we have two really, really sick kids in the hospital right now um, from COVID. So it's absolutely the case that, um, we would have done it messaging a lot differently. Dan asked a question about the past. I, I want to like look to the future and because kids ask this all the time, are we ever going to, you know, be able to live in a world without masks or are we going to be wearing masks to the supermarket for the rest of our lives? And I know you can't answer that really, but, but what's your hunch given, given your expertise? Yeah. You know, I think again, we know that um, the viruses, you know, keep evolving. This virus has to adapt we will be able to get there. The question is when. Um, I don't know if 2022 is the year, but um, I think we're going to make a lot of progress in this coming year. We're talking with Dr. Maldonado, and this is Schools In with Denise Pope and Dan Schwartz answering a whole bunch of coronavirus questions. And we are so appreciative for all the information that you've given us today. Um, I hope that in a year from now, we don't have to have you back on talking about coronavirus and we could talk about something completely different. So thank you for being here, Dr. Maldonado. And thank all of you for listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. 
If you missed any of this episode, listen anytime on demand with the SiriusXM app and anywhere you listen to podcasts. From the campus of Stanford University, this has been Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope on SiriusXM Business Radio. If you missed any of it, listen on demand, online or with the SiriusXM app. 